Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. So turn to Romans 8 in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans 8 on page 888, and we will be on the right-hand column. Uh, if you're, you can also use a bulletin or just kind of follow along with the, with the slides here. Romans 8 uh, is, we said it a few weeks ago when we started it, but in many ways, uh, Romans chapter 8 is kind of the, the climax of um, the, the book of Romans. It's uh, kind of the, the, uh, the high point of it. Um, one, one theologian described it as if the entire Bible is like a piece of, of priceless jewelry or a ring, then the book of Romans is the like the, the centerpiece. It's the biggest and best diamond on the ring. And then Romans chapter 8 is the kind of the apex, uh, the, the, the most glamorous, sparkly cut facet of that particular uh, diamond. And so we've spent more time in Romans 8 than we've spent in any of the seven chapters that preceded it uh, on purpose, because there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of content here to kind of digest and kind of spend time uh, on. So Romans 1 through Three, uh, we saw sin, condemnation, judgment. Romans three through five, we saw the person and work of Jesus. We saw salvation by grace through faith. Uh, Romans six through seven, we saw um, Paul kind of defending his gospel message against these uh, charges that would come from from its opponents. You know that 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 Paul is kind of preaching this this message of anarchy and lawlessness, and so he kind of unpacks that that when a person trusts in Jesus, he uh, is not only forgiven, kind of forensically financially, but, but he's, he's actually changed uh, intrinsically, kind of who he is in his soul to, to be converted into a person who loves, uh, loves God. So that's Romans 6 through 7. Um, Romans 8 uh, is kind of this extended, uh, you know, examination of the spirit-filled life of a believer, right? If Romans 7 that comes just before it is kind of looking at the life of a person striving in their own flesh, uh, to please God but failing to do so, then Romans 8 is a person who's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and thriving as a follower uh, of, of Jesus. And so we've seen all kinds of things, you know, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the law of sin and death, walking in the Spirit, being a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, persevering through suffering, anticipating the future glory of heaven. These are a lot of the things that we've seen in verses 1 through 25 leading up to, to now. And verses 26 through 30, we're going to look specifically at uh, some of the roles and, and um, responsibilities um, that the Holy Spirit has in our lives, what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. There's tons of things that, the, I mean, he's God, right? So there's tons of things that the Holy Spirit does, and you can turn to tons of passages in the Bible to see any number of the different things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Most notably are John 14 through 16 is a big kind of unpacking of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Book of 1 Corinthians, book of Acts, but here in this one in Romans 8, we're going to zoom in on three particular roles, responsibilities that the Holy Spirit has in our lives. Uh, we're going to look at verses 26 through 27. The Holy Spirit intercedes uh, for us in prayer. Verse 28, uh, the Holy Spirit works all things together for our good. And then verse 9 and 30, 
the Holy Spirit saves us and keeps us. So intercedes for us in prayer, works all things for our good, saves us and, and keeps us. That's kind of where, uh, where we're headed. So I'm going to read uh, the, the passage in its entirety, and then we'll pray and get to work. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your ministry and your work in our lives. None of us would even be Christians at all if you hadn't convicted us of our sin and drawn us to faith in Christ. None of us would care to or have the ability to understand your word if you didn't uh, open our eyes and illumine our spirits so that we could see it. And so, Lord, we uh, ask you and we invite you to come here with us this morning and work in our hearts, and make us more like Jesus, in whose name that we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That word likewise is kind of pointing back to the passage that we saw uh, last week, uh, speaking about suffering and persevering through suffering in the hope of and in anticipation of the future glory that is to be revealed to us, right? We live in this this post-Genesis 3, fallen, sin-affected world, and so suffering is an inevitable, inescapable part of our experience in this world. And Paul is saying, likewise, right, while while the suffering that we just talked about in the previous five verses, while that's taking place, likewise, simultaneously, the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness, right? While we're waiting and hoping and persevering and groaning like we saw last week, the Spirit is active. He's helping us. He's he's helping us to, to persevere through the life, giving us the grace and the strength that we need. And one particular way, one specific way that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness is Uh, interceding for us in prayer, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So our prayers, our prayer life, right? Paul expects that it is uh, flawed and imperfect. We don't pray as much as we should. We don't pray as wholeheartedly and sincerely as we should. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. We often pray for the wrong things instead of the, the right things. And this is a big deal because prayer, 
matters. It works. It does something. It's, a, it's effective. James 5, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So our not knowing how to pray, our not knowing what to pray for, our not being perfectly faithful in always praying for the right things when we need to, that matters a lot, which is why Jesus talked a lot about prayer, right? Matthew um, 5 and 6, right? A lot, a lot about prayer. Um, you know, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't make a big show of your prayers. Don't go on and on with big words and try to impress people. Just pray to your Father like a child speaks to his Father, gives us the template of the Lord's Prayer. Right? Jesus spoke a lot about prayer because prayer really matters, because prayer really does actually work. It changes things. It does things. Things turn out differently because we prayed than they would have turned out had we not prayed. Prayer matters, and it has eternal implications. Now, hearing that, you might say, yeah, that's bad news, because I am not a good prayer, right? I don't know what to pray for as I ought, right? I don't, right? Are you saying that if I don't pray enough for my kids, for them to come to faith in Christ, then maybe they won't, or maybe they'll walk away from the faith? If you're saying that uh, if I don't pray enough for my parents as they get older and have health complications that that you're saying that if they die it's because i didn't pray enough or i didn't pray sincerely enough or i didn't pray hard enough or often enough either prayer works or it doesn't either prayer is powerful and effective or it's not either either it matters when i pray or it doesn't can't have your you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You can't have, you can't say prayer works. It matters when I pray and I feel really good about, about like how I change something with my prayers. But also when I don't pray, I like to not feel bad about that. I don't want, uh, I don't want to feel like if someone died because I didn't pray for them enough that, that that's on, that's on me. It's kind of the age old tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, Right? Uh, either, either what we say and do matters and makes a difference in this life and in eternity, or God is in control of everything and no one can thwart his sovereign, benevolent purposes. So which one is it, right? Is, is God sovereign over all things and his purposes cannot be thwarted? Or do, we, do what we do, does what we do really matter and actually have implications for this life and the, the next? And the, the, you know, the, the reality is that the Bible teaches both that God is sovereign over all things and that what we say and what we do matters. And a, a key part of how those two things fit together, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, at least specifically with this issue of prayer, but, but a key part of how those three things fit together, God's unthwartable sovereignty, our prayers mattering, and, and actually being effective is that when we pray in some strange, mysterious way, when we pray, we are not entirely at the mercy of our words and we are not at the mercy of our ability to pray well. When, when we pray even if it's poor, even if it's inconsistent, even if we don't know what to pray for, our prayers accomplish far more than they should have given how poor they were because the Holy Spirit intercedes for our prayers and, and literally prays for us. The, when you pray, the third 
person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is, is listening, but he's also joining in. He's, he's intercepting, as it were, and then uh, augmenting and improving upon and, and, and perfecting the imperfect prayers that you were offering. The Holy Spirit takes them and perfects them and then offers them, submits them to the Father in a perfect form that is now uh, in perfect conformity with the, the will of God. The Holy Spirit, you know, when the Holy Spirit prays for you. And so you could kind of, um, you know, the, the, the sentence, the Holy Spirit prays for you, the word for is kind of ambiguous, right? It could mean, um, like, the Holy Spirit prays about you in the same way that you would pray for your kids or your friends or your family members, right? You, pray, you are the one praying and you're praying about them. You pray for them. But it could also mean, to pray, to pray for someone could also mean, um, like if you go to a restaurant and you order for your kid, like you're, you, you order in place of them. They, they have an order that they want, but you are the one who says it to the, to the server because you're, 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 inter, you're, you're speaking on their behalf. So, so both of those are true here. The Holy Spirit prays for you, in the sense that you pray for your friends and family, he's praying for you and about you, but he also is praying in your place or instead of you or as if he were you or on your behalf, like you would order in a restaurant for a, for a young child. So the Holy Spirit hears your prayers, recognizes that it's born out of weakness, recognizes that it is not what it ought to have been, and then intercedes for you with a better prayer, a perfected, more perfect prayer. He relays that prayer to the Father on your behalf, and it is often comprised of uh, groanings that are too deep for words. So, so when, when you pray, it's easy to think of prayer as this <coughs> one-way content dump, right? Um, you know, I read the Bible, and that's unidirectional. God speaks to me. And then I pray, and that's unidirectional the other way. I speak to God. But that's, I mean, there's some truth to that, but it's a little too simplistic, right? When you pray, uh, it's not just you pray, God listens and hears. It's you pray, and God is active and and he has agency and he's he's moving and working in that the holy spirit hears listens and then prays with you for you on your behalf in a way that's better than the prayers that you were offering in and of yourself god is not merely the the passive recipient of the prayers that you prayed he's listening and hearing and praying with you and praying for you with groanings that are too deep for words Word, this groaning's too deep for words is weird because we don't know what it means, right? We don't know, we don't, we don't know what, it, what something means. If something is too deep for words, then by definition, we don't know, we can't define, we can't quite grasp it or, or articulate it. So some Christians see this verse uh, and think, oh, that's, that's a reference to the phenomenon that we see in Scripture called speaking in tongues or praying in, in tongues. Uh, Mark chapter 16. Uh, these, uh, these signs will accompany those people who believe. In my name they will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. So there's this kind of um, precedent set in, in Mark. In Acts chapter 2, we see that starting to be fulfilled. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is a lot of just Paul talking about spiritual gifts and, and specifically speaking in tongues, prescriptions about it. So a lot of Christians read those passages and then they, you know, read Romans eight twenty six, and they're like, that's what they're, that's what they're talking about, right? Speaking in tongues, like Paul is saying that, that when you pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes, intercepts as it were, and, and, and prays with you, for you, on your behalf with these like inexplicable, incomprehensible utterings to the Father. And so uh, when, you, when, when Christians speak in tongues and pray in tongues, they are tapping into that uh, inexpressible or, or non-human language, this kind of inter-Trinitarian language or angelic language, this language between the God and, and, you know, angelic beings. And so when Paul says in First Corinthians, or in Second Corinthians 12, that he, he was called up into heaven and he heard things that man is not permitted to, to tell, uh, that, 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 you know, you know, you're, you're not, you wouldn't even be able to hear if I could explain it to you. They're saying, oh, that's, how God, that's God speaking in ways that cannot be uttered or, or understood. So praying in tongues is somehow tapping into that. You know, practically, to a regular human being, praying in tongues, you know, they would say praying in tongues sounds kind of like gibberish because we don't quite, it's not a human language, we don't really know what it is, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually doing the praying through us, and the Father understands uh, what the Holy Spirit is saying, uh, and, and God is hearing it and under, understanding it. So, some Christians who say that, think that, do that, practice that, understand this verse to be a reference to that. There's other Christians that say, uh, that's not what the practice of speaking in tongues is, right? The practice that we see in Mark 16 and Acts 2 and um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is not this uh, non-human gibberish sounding prayer language between the, the spirit and the father rather the, the speaking in tongues is just uh it's it's speaking another human language that miraculously that you don't know you've never studied but god is miraculously giving you the ability to speak in that language for the purpose of edifying others or telling them about about jesus right they'd say you know in the bible when god speaks to Moses in the burning bush, or in the Bible when an angel speaks, when he, you know, shows up at the, at the empty tomb and speaks to, to, you know, Mary Magdalene, it's not gibberish, it's a regular language. So they would say the, the tongues of God and angels are, are just, is regu- it's regular speech that human beings can under, understand. And so they would point to Acts 2 and say, that's why in Acts 2 what's happening is not um, this, like, private prayer language between God and, and these people. It's, it's them speaking a language they don't know miraculously with the ability to speak it perfectly in such a way that the people they're speaking to hear it and they're edified by it. They hear the gospel presented to them through it. I heard a, a missionary one time tell a story. I'm not sure if it's true or not. I mean, probably he told it. Really, he's not. It's either true or he's lying. But... Um, Told a story. He said that he see, he's like this. He was the kind of guy you, you know, who like really zealous evangelist. The guy who like every cashier, every you know, if you sit on him next to an airplane, it's it's going to happen. He's going to share the gospel with you. He doesn't miss an opportunity. He's that kind of guy. And he said he was on an airplane one time, and he uh, felt you know the he felt the Holy Spirit, um, yeah, giving him a burden. Uh, to share the gospel with the person sitting next to him, which is w- something that he does on pretty much every plane flight anyway. 
And so, like, you know, before the plane even took off, he, like, tapped the guy on the, on the shoulder and, you know, one, started to uh, talk with him about, about spiritual things and about the gospel, and the guy didn't speak English. You know, he's, you know, and so he was, like, motioning back, and I'm like, sorry, I can't, can't really talk. And so he's like, all right. So then th- so they take off, and he's, the guy's reading his magazine, and, but the Holy Spirit, is st- like, he still is feeling this burden to share the gospel with this guy. He doesn't really know how to explain it. And so... This is the weirdest story, but he said literally an hour into the flight, he tapped the guy on the shoulder again and just started uh, blurting out what he thought was just gibberish. He's like, I, I had this weird compulsion that I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to, to say which is weird, random syllables to this guy, and he did. And after about 30 seconds, the guy looked at him and was like, uh, how do you know, in perfect English, he's like, how do you know my original language? And so, the, and he's like, wait a minute, I thought you didn't know English. He's like, yeah, I was, I was lying. I didn't want to talk to you. I, w- I wanted to read my magazine, so I was pretending I didn't speak English, but I do. But how do you know my language? And he's like, I don't know what I'm saying. And he's like, yeah, you just told me in like a perfect accent as if you were a native speaker. You told me that Jesus is God and that Jesus wants to save me from my sin and that I need to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus so that he will save me. So I don't, again, that's, I mean, again, I, he told me, so either it happened or he's lying. I don't know. But So some people say that's what speaking in tongues is. It's not a private prayer language between you and God in your closet with no one else involved. It's, it's, it's miraculous intervention from God to allow you to speak a language you don't know for the purpose of telling people about Jesus and edifying people uh, across um, you know, ethnic barriers, across language barriers. So which is it? Is speaking in tongues a private prayer language? Right? That, that, that is not a human language that, men, that, that humans can't... Or is it, is it you know, miraculously speaking another human language that you don't know? And I, I wish I could tell you the answer. If you're like hoping that I settle a bet for you, I don't know the answer. Um, I, oh, well, so there are people that I know, people that I admire, people that I've listened to countless sermons, read their books, their heroes and mentors of mine, who have personally, who, who do and have, you know, speak and pray in a, a, a private prayer language. They do it regularly when they're, when they're having a quiet time, when they're deep in meditation, they will sometimes, you just, just in, in this weird way, switch into this private prayer language. They don't always know even what they're praying for, but oftentimes they say they do have some sense of what it is that they're praying for because they're kind of, you know, they can kind of understand it a, a little bit. And so again, faithful Christians, godly believers, mentors of mine, say that, think that, do that. There are also faithful Christians, godly believers, mentors of mine who are pretty adamant that speaking in tongues is not that, that it is only speaking in a human language, and beyond that, it's also, for the most part, almost entirely confined to the first century before the New Testament was, was written. Right? So they say after the New Testament was completed, then these kinds of, of, of gifts uh, almost entirely stop. And th- those guys, right, that say, you know, that, that are very adamant that it's a, a human language, will also point to what... Often, the, the practice of speaking in tongues in churches that aren't very healthy or in 
revival settings or conferences or whatever it is, and it oftentimes looks pretty hyper-emotional and, and very chaotic and disordered, and, and they'll say that looks less like the worship of God that we see in the Bible, and it looks more like the, like the, the worship of, of Israel's pagan neighbors, Right, this kind of weird, ecstatic, hyper-emotional, you know, out of your mind, not not meditating on God's word, but but like in this weird trance, out of out of your mind state. And so, I, again, so there's Christians that I think that are very skeptical of speaking in tongues. That I understand to be godly, faithful Christians, listen to their sermons, read their books. So I don't really know. Full disclosure: I've never spoken in tongues, um, but I. I'm not willing to say that it's not something that can happen today. Because again, people that, the people that I know that, that do it, um, I understand to be, to be faithful and godly and mature Christians. What I can say, here's what I will say about speaking in tongues. Um, I'm, I'm open to the reality that it exists. I'm cautious about it, and I haven't personally experienced it. But what I can say is that kind of the... the, the on the fringes of either side, the really hard-line guys. The guy who says, I speak in tongues, and you should too. And if you don't, that is a sign of spiritual deficiency in your life. In fact, you don't even have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you unless you speak in tongues like I do. That guy's wrong. The guy who says, uh, I speak in tongues. In fact, we speak in tongues at this church, and frankly, anything goes. And our services uh, run the risk of, of looking crazy and chaotic, and we don't follow the prescriptions that Paul specifically lays out in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14, that guy is wrong. And on the way other side, the guy who says, I don't speak in tongues, I've heard people say this, I don't speak in tongues, and if anyone does speak in tongues, from the most problematic forms of it to even the most benign forms of it, all of those people who speak in tongues are actually worshiping demons and they're not Christians at all, I think that guy's wrong too. I, th- I think that like the very hard line stance on either, so when, when you go so far as to say, you don't have the Holy Spirit because you don't do what I do, or you're not a Christian because you don't do what I do, I think you've probably you know, drifted a little too, too far, far there. But, speaking in tongues, human language, non-human language, not sure, open to the fact that it's a non-human language, I've never personally experienced it. That's a whole big uh, aside, from, just just since we passed this this uh, clause here in Romans eight twenty six, the bottom line is that the Holy Spirit is hearing your prayers and then interceding for you, praying to the Father on your behalf with a more perfect, better prayer than the weak, imperfect one that you were uh, initially offering. And when that happens, verse twenty seven, he who searches hearts—that's God the Father. God knows what is happening in the mind of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit offers a better, more perfect prayer on our behalf. The Father is the right... um, Psalm 44, God knows the secrets of the heart. 1 Samuel 16, people look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So um, the one who searches hearts is God. The mind of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and God is listening and understanding and knowing what the Spirit is saying when the Spirit intercedes for you according to the will of God, right? Your prayer was not perfect. It was born out of weakness. It was not what it ought to be, verse 26. 
but the Holy Spirit's prayer for you is perfectly according to the will of God. So when we offer prayers that are not in accordance with the will of God, the Spirit takes them, re- repackages them, and right when, I, when I'm looking for a parking spot and I pray that God would help me find a parking spot, the Holy Spirit probably takes that and reinterprets it and offers it to the Father as saying, God, Ben wants you to be glorified through his experience of looking for a parking spot. Ben wants you to give him patience and grace and a better attitude, as he right? Like that, like, so, so our prayers are inevitably not perfect. The Holy Spirit's prayers are inevitably perfect, and the Holy Spirit takes and intercedes for our prayers as we are offering them to the, the Father. That's, that's one role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, 26 to 27, interceding for our prayers. The next is verse 28. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the second thing that the Holy Spirit does is work everything in our lives together for our good. It's not just the particular, right, verse 26, the Spirit comes to us and helps us in our weakness. These particular moments, pockets of time where we are weak and struggling and where we need particular special grace, the Spirit draws near to us and gives us grace there. But it's also on a general, global, broad, grand sense that the Holy Spirit is working everything in our lives together, both in our weakness and in our strengths, both in our joys and in our sorrows, everything God is working all of that. The Spirit is working all of that together for our good. Your entire life, right, as a, as a collective unit, God, the, the Holy Spirit, is working that for it. So, so two observations about verse 28 that are, that are worth just kind of pausing at briefly as we go by it. One is that it is all things working together for your good. It's not that um, every single individual isolated event, circumstance, moment, thing that happens to you in your life all by itself in a vacuum, if you isolate it and look at it, that thing is for your good. Paul is saying that all things work together for your, for your good. So suffering and joy together. Right, difficult things, and uh, you know, enjoy. Like when, when I got in a car accident a few years ago, it went, I got hit by a drunk driver on the bridge. Or the guy in front of me got hit by a drunk. I was barely hit, but um, drunk driver head-on collision with the car in front of me. Those the two people in the at-fault vehicle died. The two people in the car that they hit were almost died, very critical condition. I. Had a you know I my, gashed my head open from my eyebrow to my ear and broke my arm. So like that like there's nothing good about any of that. That was a bad thing that happened in every sense. I mean I've, I've looked at it from every way that I can think of. It was just a bad thing. There's nothing good about it. So so Paul's not saying that every single thing is in and of itself good. When you get cancer, when the the person that you love dies, these are bad things. But God uses those bad things together along with every other moment and experience and circumstance in your life to, to build one big mosaic, one big collective 
thing that is your life, and that life is good. God uses good and bad, crafts them together into a life that is good. A life that had been better than if you had not suffered. In, right? So that car act, like, I don't know how, but I, if, if I lived a life, I know that my life is better for my having been in that car accident than it otherwise would have been had I not been in it. The car accident was bad. The fact that it was bad doesn't mean that it made my life worse because, because my life, God is working all things together for my good. So even the bad things somehow contribute a, a net positive, right? Like, like it's not that they are drag the average down. It's that they, together with everything else in your life, make your life the, the most good that it could possibly be. God is good. And so God is the one that allows all of the pain and suffering that we experience, along with every other aspect of our lives, God allows all of those things to happen together, and he does them for our, right, when, for our good. When, in, when an artist is painting a painting, and they're halfway done, it probably looks weird. And you don't know what he's painting, you don't know why, and you, you know, if you try to sell it at an auction, it probably wouldn't make very much money because it's weird and, and goofy, and it, right? But by the time it's done, it's beautiful and it's good, right? God works in our lives in a similar way. He takes everything together in our lives and works it for our good. So that's, that's one observation about verse 28. The other is the qualifications or, or like the specific people that, it's, that it has in view, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, call, so love God, called according to his purpose. So the specific people that are in view for this promise here in verse 28 are the people who love Jesus, trust in Jesus, walk with Jesus, love God, and they've been called according to the purposes of God. Those are the specific people that can lean on and, and rest on and, and possess and take hold of these, these promises. The people that are inevitably going to end up spending eternity with God, in the presence of God, enjoying the glory of God, God works all things together for their good. For, for people who are not, for people who reject Jesus, for people who rebel against Jesus and persist in it, and are therefore going to spend eternity apart from God's sovereign grace and, and love, right? people who are going to experience eternal conscious punishment in hell, all things don't work together for their good, right? All, thi- all things work together for the ultimate, final glory of God for all people. Every single person's existence, this life and the next, is going to maximally glorify God, make much of God, make God look good and great and wonderful. So the, 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 the distinction is, or the catch is, is your life going to bring maximal glory to God? Is your life going to work together for the glory of God and for your good? Or is your life going to, all things going to work together in your life for the glory of God at your expense? 
All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to the purposes of God. When a person spends eternity in hell, that's not good for them. It doesn't bring them joy. It brings God glory, but it does not bring them joy. So again, the question is, will your life bring God's glory, bring, bring about God's glory and your good, or will your life bring about God's glory at your expense? Which is why, which is why evangelism and gospel ministry is so vitally, profoundly important. Because this promise of Romans 8.28 is at stake for people that we share the gospel with. This isn't a universal promise for every single human being. This is a specific, particular promise for a person who is part of God's, the, the bride of Christ, right? The people of God. This promise is for them. And so evangelism and gospel ministry is vitally important because this promise in this verse hinges on whether people love God, are called by God, trust in Jesus, and are reconciled to him. It's a promise for the people of God, and if someone rejects Jesus, then it's a promise that is for someone else and is entirely irrelevant for them. So don't sleep on your responsibility to tell others about Jesus. It is vitally important. Point one, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. Point two, the Holy Spirit works all things together for our good. And then finally, point three, the Holy Spirit keeps us for all of eternity. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. Foreknew, knew beforehand, right? Knew in advance. The idea is that before God created the world, in eternity past, when all there was was God and the Trinity and the mind of God, somehow God knew you. You say, well, how could he know me? I didn't exist yet. It's one of those weird mysteries. It's what makes God, God, and us not God, right? You didn't exist before you were born. That much, I think, is indisputable. There's cults that believe that you did. They're not accurate. That's not right. We didn't exist before we were born. But despite the fact that we didn't exist yet, God knew us. God didn't just know things about you. He didn't just know what, what color hair you would have or whether you would believe in Jesus. There's people that try to get out of this by saying, oh, that, they're saying foreknew means that he knew in advance that you would believe in Jesus. But no, this is, this is for, he foreknew you. He knew you relationally and, and intimately, in, intimately. In some mysterious way, God knew you, loved you, cared about you, was invested in your well-being before you ever even existed all the way in eternity past. And so for all of those people, all, every single one of those, this is a, you know, freshman philosophy logic class, right? Like, all of the people that God foreknew, every single one of them, save none, right? Like there's no exceptions. All of the people that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there's no one that God foreknew that he did not also then predestine. The word predestine is also a little, you know, some people object to that word. Claim that it robs them of their agency. 
their ability to make meaningful choices. I would, for what it's worth, I, 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 do, I, I don't think that the idea of God predestining things robs us of our agency or meaningful choices, but that's another conversation for another time. But people who don't like the word uh, predestined, it's fairly unavoidable. If, if you take the Bible as authoritative and let it speak for itself, it's fairly unavoidable. We see it here in verse 29. We see it in Romans 9. The next chapter, we see it in Ephesians chapter 1. God predestines his people that they'll trust in him and be adopted into his family as children and be conformed to the image of, of God. So every single person that God foreknew, he predestined. Every single person that God predestined, he then called, verse 30. So God, when we become a Christian, we are called out of our former way of life, right? Before God called us, we were content to live and die in our sin and be separated from God for all of eternity. But God called us out of that. He invited us out of that. If you trust in Jesus, it's not because you're smarter or better or more holy or more spiritually attuned than anyone else. If you trust in Jesus, it's because God called you and he attuned your ear to hear his call and he softened your heart and he invited you and he called you out of your old life into this new life with him. All of those people that he called, he also justified. It's a legal term, meaning to be declared righteous, to be declared as if you are right and good. God justifies his right when God justifies his people he doesn't look at them and discover that they are righteous he looks at them and he declares them to be righteous despite the fact that they are not because Jesus dies in their place as a substitute takes their sin upon his shoulders dies in their place right God is, he's punished in their place. God's wrath is satisfied. And so now, because God looked at Jesus and treated him as if he had committed your sin, God can now look at you and justify you and declare you righteous and declare that you have effectively lived the perfectly righteous life of Jesus. So God foreknows and predestines and calls and justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. He he brings them home into glory with him. New life, new resurrection body, right? New creation. Everything that there was in the Garden of Eden, only infinitely better even than, than that, right? Everyone that God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he just, there's a, there's a, a line, there's, there's a, an, an unbreakable line that goes all the way from eternity past. God foreknew you all the way to eternity future. God will glorify you. The weight, right? Any of these words in these verses are beautiful and incredible in and of themselves. There is much to be gained from studying and meditating on any one of these words in these two verses. But the weight and the beauty from these verses comes from the, the through line that binds each one of them to the next and will eventually bring us safely home. Each clause leads inevitably to the one that follows it, and each clause builds on the one that preceded it. 
There's not, there's, there, it's impossible. It's a non, non-starter. There is no one that God has foreknown that is not predestined. There is no one that God has predestined that is not called. There's no one that God has called that is not justified. And there is no one that God has justified that is not glorified. Every single person is brought safely home through the ups and downs of this life, through the the sufferings and joys of this life, all the way, right? We saw this in Romans 5, right? God doesn't lose his people. Romans 5, since therefore we have been justified by the blood of Christ, how much more will we now be saved from the wrath of, of God? If God reconciles us to himself, why will, if God reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies, how much more will he keep us with himself now that we are now that we're his friends. If God was willing to do the more difficult thing of saving a sinner who hates him, then of course he's willing to do the next thing of keeping a saint who loves him. God never, ever loses a child. A few weeks ago, I was playing with my son back. We were playing hide-and-seek. He'd run and hide, and I'd find him. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd go hide, and he'd come looking for me. And at one point, I found a hiding spot that was a little too good. I was in the back, like, you know, we were kind of going back and forth from this room at the end of the hall to this room at the end of the hall. And at one point, I thought, I'm going to mix it up, and I'm going to hide in the bathroom in the middle of the hall. And so I'd go down there, and he'd come, I'd, I'd watch him run by the bathroom, looking in this room, and then I'd kind of, like, tap on the wall to let him know, you know, and then I'd, you know, he would turn around and run, but he'd run right by the bathroom again to this, and he did it probably four or five times. And I, it, I, I wanted to, I, I try to like let him figure stuff out. I try to make things a little challenging for him to, to watch his little brain, try to figure it out. So he'd run down here da- and playfully, right? Dad, where are you? I'd tap on the door. He'd run down here. Dad, where are you? Over and over. And I took it a little too far. And after, I don't know, a, a one too many two times, Dad, where are you? He runs, and then he, um, he like, stop, he like it, his voice changes, and he, he, it goes from, like, playfully laughing, Dad, where, so, like, Dad, where are you? He's scared. And he, like, collapses on the floor, and he's crying. And I run to him, scoop him up, I, uh, yeah, comforting him. Buddy, it's okay. I'm here. I was here the whole time. We were just playing a game. It's okay. Uh, we, another thing that I try to do with him is, is, you know, he's just, he's becoming more verbal. I'm trying to teach him how to articulate what he's feeling with his words. And so if he's mad, don't just scream and cry. And, you know, but like, so we'll say, buddy, are you, are you hurt or are you sad? It's a question I ask him 10 times a day. Are you hurt or are you sad? And depending on, you know, if he says I'm sad, okay, all right, well, tell me why you're sad. Then I have to prompt him. I say, say, I'm sad because, and then he'll, and then he'll, and he's getting better. He's getting better at articulating what's, what's wrong. I'm hurt. My stomach hurts. I'm sad because Theo took my toy, whatever it is. So I scoop him up. I hug him. I say, buddy, I'm sorry. I'm right here. I didn't go anywhere. We're just playing a game. I said, and he's crying, screaming. I said, all right, listen, listen, are you hurt or are you sad? I'm sad. All right, can you tell me why you're sad? 
He says, I'm, I'm sad because I lost you. So now I'm crying, right? Like, he's crying, now I'm crying. I hug him up, kind of squeeze him, and I say, buddy, you didn't lose me. I was right there in the bathroom the whole time. We were just playing a game. You didn't lose me. But listen, Baxter, more than that, like, I, I will never lose you. I will never lose you. I wasn't lying. I don't think it was wrong for me to say that. If I had to do it all over again, I'd probably say that same thing again. I will never lose you. Because the reality is, like, I will... For the rest of my life, I will try my hardest or I'll, I'll die trying to not lose my son. But if I'm being totally honest, I don't know that I won't lose him. I might because I'm not God. I'm just a man. All I can do is try my hardest to not lose my son. Friends, when God promises that he will never lose you, he will never, ever lose you. By definition, God cannot fail to do something that he sets out to do. He cannot, he will not lose any of his children ever. It cannot happen. If you trust in Jesus... If you trust in Jesus right now, that is because before the foundations of the world, God foreknew you. And everyone that God foreknows, He predestines. And everyone that God predestines, He calls. And everyone that God calls, He justifies. And everyone that God justifies, He glorifies. God will never lose any of His children. And if you trust in Jesus, God will never lose you. No matter what happens, for the rest of your life, God will never lose you. So you can rest, you can trust, because you're safe with Him. You can walk through the worst suffering that this world has to throw at you because you are safe with Him. God will never, ever lose you. The Holy Spirit helps us and intercedes for us. He works all things for our good and He keeps us for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the promises that we see in this text. We thank you that you help us in our weakness. We thank you that you intercede for us. We thank you that you sovereignly work all things together for our good. We thank you that you have justified us and that you have promised to keep us for all of eternity. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust and believe these truths and to live in light of them for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.